It was a great week. Earlier this summer, Claire took the kids to pick blueberries. And on Thursday of that week, Claire made a homemade blueberry pie. Can I get a witness? On Friday, Claire made homemade blueberry muffins. On Saturday, Claire made homemade blueberry waffles. It was a great week. And I want you to understand that something bigger had to happen for me to enjoy those different things. At some point in the past, someone had to plant some blueberry bushes. And then they had to cultivate those plants so that they would grow. And eventually grow to the point where they were bearing fruit so that someone could come along and pick them and make good things like blueberry pie. Some things had to happen for us to enjoy the fruit. Well, that's a, a picture of our spiritual lives. The Lord wants us to be rooted in Christ. And He wants us to grow into maturity in Christ's likeness. And the Lord expects us and works in us so we can grow to the point where we actually bear fruit. Good, Christ-honoring, God-glorifying things come from our lives. That's what God wants from all of us. And we see this theme driven home in the book of Colossians. As a matter of fact, I think that this is the central theme of this book. Rooted. Growing. Fruitful. And we see it right at the very beginning. So turn with me to the book of Colossians in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Someone asked me this weekend how long it was going to take me to preach through the Colossians. And I, the answer is I'm not sure. But this much I know. We only get through two verses this morning. And we barely get through two verses. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. I want to ask you this morning, if you're physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints, and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in Jesus' name and we are so grateful for your presence in this place. We know that all is vain unless the, the presence of your Spirit comes down. We know that we need you. And if this time is going to have any profit, any spiritual profit, it's going to be because you work in our midst. So Holy Spirit of God, I ask you to take the Word the Bible, and apply it to our lives. Help us to understand this text and be moved by this text and seek to apply this text to our daily lives. Help us today to lift up the name of Jesus. 
Because, Lord Jesus, you said that when you are lifted up, you draw men to yourself. So may you be exalted in this place today. It's all about you. Lord, establish my steps today in your word, and we ask and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. The book of Colossians is, in reality, a letter, an epistle, that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Colossae. Now, we know that Paul wrote it because Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So, Timothy was with him as he was writing this letter. Now, Paul was the primary author of the letter. We know this because all throughout Colossians, he uses the first person singular, I, not we. Timothy was there as a companion, an encourager, maybe even an amanuensis who actually wrote down the words that Paul dictated to him. But Paul is the primary author of this letter. And we know by looking at the clues in this book and the clues in the book of Acts and the timeline and all of that, we know that he probably wrote this book around A.D. 61 or 62 during his first Roman imprisonment. He wrote this book in jail. We know that because it's explicit in the text. Look in chapter 4 with me, verse 2. I want to show you this. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have also been in prison. So Paul says, I'm in prison because I've spoken forth uh, the message of Jesus. And then he says in verse 18, the last verse in this book, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, remember my imprisonment. Remember my imprisonment. Paul was in prison as he wrote this letter. And as he begins this letter, even the first two verses, which are introductory in nature, we see some, some powerful realities that help us understand what the, the book is going to be about, the direction that Paul is headed. So I want to share with you this morning three realities found in these first two verses. Here's the first reality that I want us to see. The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Look what Paul says there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, there are many different words used there that help us to understand, to begin to grasp the power of the gospel. So I want to make about four statements about the power of the gospel for us to, to, to grasp this even further. Number one, I want you to see that the gospel has the power to save hard-hearted enemies of Christ. The gospel has the power to save hard-hearted enemies of Christ. So wait, how do you know that? Well, look what it says there in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was not always the name he was known by. Before he was known by the name Paul, he was known by the name Saul. And before he was an apostle or a missionary of Jesus Christ, he was an enemy of Jesus Christ and his church. The book of Acts records this. He was a Pharisee, an up-and-coming star among the religious elite of that day. And because the Pharisees were bothered by their decreasing influence as more and more people began to follow Jesus Christ, 
They became enemies of Christ, enemies of his church, and tried to stamp out this movement of these followers of the way. As a matter of fact, we see Stephen being stoned to death, the first martyr of the church. He's preaching Christ, and the religious leaders get so enraged, they pick up stones to throw at Stephen. The Bible records that Paul was there holding the coats of those throwing the stones. In full approval of this murder of Stephen. And then Acts records that Paul was headed to Syria to a city called Damascus. And his intention to go to Damascus was to go to followers of Christ and drag them out of their homes and throw them into prison. To intimidate them into silence so they would no longer share Jesus Christ with others. But on his way to Damascus, something happened. Something amazing happened. The Lord Jesus Christ encountered Paul with a bright light. And he captured Paul's mind and he captured Paul's heart. And Paul said, who are you, Lord? And a voice from heaven said, I am Jesus whom you have been persecuting. You've been persecuting my church. You've been persecuting me. I'm the head of the church. And he gets Paul's attention. And at that moment, Paul is converted. He becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his life is fundamentally transformed. He goes from being an enemy of the cross to a preacher of the cross. He goes from being a a persecutor of the church to a missionary for the church. The, the, The change is unbelievable as we see it happen in the book of Acts. So we learn from this that the gospel has the power to change hard-hearted enemies of Christ. Now here's the question. Do you really believe that? Do you believe the gospel has the power to save that hard-hearted family member that is not interested in Jesus at all? Do you believe the the gospel has the power to save that neighbor who, who doesn't care for you very much because... They don't care for the the Jesus you follow. Do you believe the gospel has the power to save a a terrorist who is an enemy of Christianity? Do you believe the gospel can save those sorts of folks? Colossians reminds us that the gospel has that power. Paul is writing this. He used to be Saul, but now he's a follower of Christ. Now he's a missionary. Now he's an apostle. Now he's a leader. Now he's a a sold-out follower of Jesus. The gospel has the power to save hard-hearted enemies of Christ. Secondly, the gospel has the power to save children that are taught the Bible. Look what he says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy. Timothy was his missionary companion, and he calls Timothy our brother. Now, we learn about Timothy in Acts chapter 16 on Paul's second missionary journey in the Lystra Derby area. Paul takes Timothy on him, uh, with him on his next leg of his journey. And we know that Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother. And when we read 2 Timothy, where Paul was writing to Timothy about how to pastor the church in Ephesus later on, Paul mentions the the pure faith of Timothy. And he says, this faith that is yours was once your grandmother's and your mother's, and they passed it on to you, Lois and Eunice. 
So you heard the gospel from Lois and Eunice, and you received Christ and began to follow Christ yourself. So how did Timothy get saved? Paul got saved by bright light encountering him on the road to Damascus. Timothy got saved sitting at the feet of his grandmother and mother, teaching him the gospel. Probably what happened is during his first missionary journey, Paul led Lois and Eunice to faith in Christ. And then they began to pass on the gospel to their grandson and son named Timothy. And at some point, as Timothy heard the good news, heard the word of God, at some point, Timothy placed his faith in Christ and was saved. The gospel has the power to save children that are taught the Bible. Which, by the way, parents, that's why we teach our kids the Bible. Amen? To give them that opportunity. Grandparents, that's why we teach our grandchildren the Bible. To to point them to faith in Christ. Because we know if they hear the gospel and they respond to the gospel, they can experience the same salvation that we have experienced. And Timothy is a reminder of that reality. So the gospel has that power to save your children if you'll just teach them the word of God. Third, the gospel changes the trajectory of our lives. The gospel changes the direction, the trajectory of our lives. Look what it says in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, this word literally means sent one. It was the term given to the early leaders in the New Testament church. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So Paul says, that's who I am. God has chosen for me to be an apostle, to be a leader in this this church to be a missionary, to be a sent one. You say, well, wait, that's Paul. I mean, Paul's special, right? He was, a, he was one of the first missionaries that came out of the early church. He was a leader in the church. God used him to, to write many of our books in the Bible through the Holy Spirit, working through him. So wait, that, I mean, that's Paul. Of course, he, had, he could say, I have a purpose by the will of God. But can I share this with you? Every one of you in this room, Everyone in this room, God has a purpose for your life. Every one of you. Let me quote for you Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. The Bible says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We know those verses. We're saved by grace through faith, not by achieving something, but by believing in Christ. That's how we're saved, receiving the gift of salvation. But you've got to keep reading. Verse 10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, or works that God has prepared beforehand. If you know Christ, God has some works He prepared beforehand for you to fulfill. Just like the will of God was for Paul to be an apostle, God has a will for your life too. He wants to change the trajectory of your life. Before you met Christ, it was all about you. All about your dreams, your plan, your agenda. What you wanted to do. What what you wanted to achieve in life. But when you meet Christ and the Holy Spirit grips your heart, here's what he does. He takes God's plans and God's dreams and God's agenda and God's ambition and he puts them in your heart and says, walk in these things. Fulfill the purpose God has for your life. If you will follow Jesus, the gospel will change the trajectory of your life. Fourth, the gospel changes our identity. The gospel changes our identity. Look what he says there in verse 2. 
He identifies who's writing, Paul and Timothy. Now he identifies who he's writing to. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, the first phrase he uses for these believers in Colossae is the word saints. To the saints. That word means literally to be set apart. To be made holy. To be, to be set apart for a purpose. It speaks of us as Christ followers becoming God's precious possession. When we are saved, God sets us apart for himself. He makes us different. He sets us apart from the world. Now, a lot of us don't understand the word saints because it's been misused in many circles during our, our time. For example, some people say, well, so, such and such achieve certain levels of goodness and works and righteousness, then we'll call them a saint. Saint so-and-so because they've done a bunch of good stuff and they're worthy of sainthood. That is not the way the Bible uses that word. The Bible calls every follower a saint. You see, sainthood is not something you achieve, it's something you receive. And, and you're not a saint because you're good, you're a saint because he's good, and when you were saved, God in his grace set you apart. And he says to the church in Colossae, you are saints. Now, this word is even more striking when you consider who they were before they met Christ. Look in chapter 1 with me, verse 21. Verse 21. Paul writes, Although you were formerly, watch this, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Paul reminds them who they were before they met Christ. They were far from God. They were hostile toward God, involved in a bunch of immoral things. But now, Paul's calling them saints. God has set you apart like what Jerry Bridges writes, sainthood is not a spiritual attainment. It is rather a state or status into which God brings every believer. All Christians are saints. Not because you're good, but because he's good. And that's what he did at the moment you met Christ. So he says, your identity is you are saints set apart by God. Secondly, the second part of their identity is this. They were members of the family of God. Members of the family of God. In verse 2 he writes, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. That's a family term. And when he introduces Timothy, he says, Timothy, our brother. That's a family term. Here's what he's saying. Everyone that knows Christ as their Lord and Savior becomes a part of the family of God. That is central to who you are now. That is your identity in Christ. Now, because you have been saved, you are a part of God's family. And that will never change. Once a child of God, always a child of God. And now you have a lot of brothers and sisters in the church. Right? And he reminds them, that's who you are. Members of the family of God. Let me tell you a neat experience. I've, I've traveled all over the world. I've been... A, you know, many different continents and many different countries, and it's always really cool to go to a church with people you've never met before and worship with them, sometimes in a different language, and know that you are standing there with your brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, you never met them, but you know them. You never met them, but you're bound together by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. I mean, they are your brothers and sisters, and you feel that. There's nothing like it. And that's because 
when we meet Christ, our fundamental identity changed. Instead of being far from God, we become a part of the family of God. And that is thrilling. And then the last phrase he uses to speak of their identity is this. In Christ. In Christ. Look what he says in verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren, in Christ. Let's say it together. Ready? In Christ. This was one of Paul's favorite phrases. A way to speak of our identity as believers in Jesus. He uses it all the time in the book of Ephesians. In Christ. In Christ Jesus. In Jesus Christ. In Him. This phrase, in Christ, means we are united to Christ. It speaks of our union with Him when we met Him as our Lord and Savior. It means that He is our representative before God. Now, I want you to hear me. This is a very, very important reality. Everyone in this room and everyone in this world has one of two representatives. Someone representing you before God. Either you are represented by Adam, who sinned, through him sin entered the world, and because of Adam's sin, you've been born with a sin nature, that's why you sin. Either he's your representative, or Jesus is your representative. And listen to what Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22. He writes, as in Adam, all die. If Adam is your representative, if you are linked to him, then you will follow in his footsteps and experience eternal separation from God. Remember when Adam sinned, what happened? He was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, right? And if he's your representative and you die in that condition, you will spend all of eternity separated from God in that awful place called hell. In Adam, all die. But listen to the next part of that verse. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. If Christ is your representative, if you are in Christ, if he's your, your Savior and Lord, then you experience eternal life. So who is your representative before God? Is it Adam? You were born with Adam being your representative. Or is it Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead? And if you believe in him, he represents your life now. He is your high priest before God. He is your advocate before the Father. And in him, in him, you have life. So he speaks of them being in Christ. He speaks of their identity. Once you were in Adam, but now you are in Christ. That's who we are when we meet Jesus. We have a vital, living union or relationship with Christ. The power of the gospel. Now, in the first service, I shared the story at, at this point, when I came to the illustration of this truth, I shared the story of John Newton, the, the slave trader in the 18th century, uh, who was wicked and evil, got saved, and he became a pastor, and he wrote the great song and many others, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. But I want to share another story this morning. I want to share the story of my dad. Some of you have heard this before. But before I was born, my family was unchurched. Mom and dad, they weren't involved in church anywhere. They were just finishing up college, getting jobs, just doing their own thing. One day, my dad tells a story. He was there in his front yard, raking the grass, drinking a beer. And this Baptist preacher just came walking down the street, door to door to door. And he stopped and began to talk with my dad in the front yard there. 
And he began to walk my dad through the gospel, the good news. You know what happened? In those moments, my dad gave his life to Jesus. He was saved. So when I was born, I was born into a church family because my dad met Jesus. Then my mom met Jesus. They were baptized. And it changed, not, listen to me, not only the trajectory of my dad's life, the trajectory of our family. At that moment, when he met Christ, his identity changed in his front yard. And his trajectory changed, and he experienced the life-transforming power of the gospel. That's what we're all about as a church. That's the message we're proclaiming, and that's the message we're sharing. That's what we're all about, getting the good news out. Because we know that if people who are far from God will embrace Jesus Christ, they can experience a personal relationship with God through his Son. Right? The power of the gospel. Secondly, I want to talk just for a moment about the potential of church planting. The potential of church planting. The Bible says, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. So there's a group of Christians here in this town of Colossae. Now, what's the story of these Christians? Why are there Christians in Colossae? Well, if you look there on your notes, the church in Colossae was a church plant that met in a house. Now, Colossae was an unimportant town in the province of Asia Minor in the Lycus River Valley. At one time, it was an important city, but its importance and influence had waned over time. It, had, it was a small town during the first century. And we know that early in the AD 60s, uh, the town went through a great earthquake along with Laodicea and Hierapolis, who were close to this city in this, in this valley. And, and the city probably never recovered from this earthquake. It was a, it was a small town. You say, wait, how did they get the gospel? Well, Paul tells us this church was started as a result of Epaphras sharing the gospel. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 7. He speaks of the gospel and he says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So there was a time when this man named Epaphras came riding into town, and he shared the gospel, and folks got saved, and a church started. That's what happened. Epaphras was the church planner. Not Paul, Epaphras. Now, Epaphras probably came in and started this church as a result of Paul's influence. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19, very quickly. I'm going to show you this connection. Acts chapter 19. During Paul's third missionary journey, he stayed for... A long time in Ephesus. This was his base of operations. And look what it says in Acts chapter 19, verse 10. This took place for two years, him being in Ephesus, so that all who lived in Asia, including Colossae, Hierapolis, Laodicea, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So probably what happened is Epaphras made his way to Ephesus. He heard the gospel from Paul. And then he went back about 100 miles to Colossae, Laodicea, Hierapolis. He shared the gospel, and churches started in those towns. So the church in Colossae was a church plant. Someone preached the gospel, and a new church started. And we know this church met in a house, because along with the letter to Colossae, Paul sent another letter addressed to a man named Philemon, only one chapter long, there in your New Testament. Then Philemon, he mentions Archippus who had a church meeting in his house. 
And then at the end of chapter 4 of Colossians, he mentions Archippus again. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. Say to Archippus, the one who had a church in his house, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. So here's what happened. Epaphras came into town, preached the gospel, a church was started, and they met in the house of Archippus. That's the church in Colossae. Now here's what I want you to understand. Here's how this applies to us today. Not only was the church in Colossae a church plant, every church is a church plant. Did you know that? Every church is a church plant. Longview Point started almost 11 years ago. A group of folks got together, we started meeting together and launched on September 8, 2002, and a brand new church was started in Hernando. As a matter of fact, I'm preaching tonight at Longview Heights Baptist Church. You're invited to come up there for their service because we're going to be celebrating what God did at Longview Point. I'm going to be thanking them for their investment to start a, a new church in this area. So if you, we don't have anything going on here tonight. If you want to, come and worship at Longview Heights. Love to have you there for that. Good to see some, some, some uh, Longview Point faces out there. But, but we, we celebrate that God started this church. But listen to me. Not only is Longview Point a church plant, the first Baptist church in small town Bible Belt, is a church plant, even though it's 200 years old. It had a starting place, right? Every church has a starting place. Every church is a church plant. But here's the question. Will the new thing that God has done to start your church stop with you? Or will you keep starting churches that start churches that start? That's why we prioritize church plants. Can I tell you this? We planted a good number of churches last year as a convention, so they're about to convention. But when you look at the churches that died, we barely made a net gain. Barely. We need church plants. And by the way, Colossae was a small town. Big cities need church plants, but also small towns need church plants. Can I get an amen? That's why we give money and focus on training interns so that we can send out folks that will plant churches in places like Washington, D.C., Gregory and Sharina, they left last week, and also Lewisburg and Senatobia. In West Hernando, people need the gospel. And the gospel moves forward with power through church plants. You know, when we got to Hernando in 2002, we didn't bring God with us. God was already here. He was already moving in people's hearts. I equate it to... To gasoline. You know, if you spill some gasoline and then a spark hits that gasoline, the gasoline will, will burst into flame. And, and I believe what the, the Lord was doing, Hernando, is he was pouring out his, his gasoline on people's hearts. And the new church was like a spark that lit that gasoline in their lives, that work of God in their lives. And, and we saw folks catch fire for the Lord. All they needed was the spark, and the church plant was the spark. As we plant churches, we're taking the spark of Jesus Christ, the spark of the gospel, igniting it with the work of the Spirit and seeing lives change, the potential of a church plant. We're going to see here that lives are being changed in Colossae. Why? Because someone came into town and preached the gospel. A church was started. But let me give you a third thing very quickly and we'll be through. We've seen the power of the gospel in these first two verses and we've seen 
the potential of church planting. But third and last, I want to show you the purpose of the letter. Look what Paul says there in Colossians 1, verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. The word grace speaks of God's favor. So he's saying, I want God's favor to rest on your church. And I want God's peace. The word peace is probably an equivalent to the Old Testament term shalom, which carries with it the idea of well-being. So he says, I want God's favor and well-being to be upon you. In other words, Paul wanted some things for this church. He wanted to address some areas in their lives. He said, I, I pray God will be with you as these areas are addressed. So you can be all that God has called you to be. Which leads to this question. Why is Paul writing this letter? Let me give you three things. Number one, and we'll be through. He wanted the church in Colossae to be rooted. Rooted. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 6. He writes, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted. So Paul's saying, you met Christ. Your lives were rooted in Christ. And what was happening is false teaching had infiltrated this church, so people were being led away from the simplicity of following Christ. You had some folks in this church saying, you know what? If you really want to be right with God, you need Jesus, but you need to do some other things too. Jesus plus all these other things. Worshiping angels, you know, disciplining your body in a certain way. If you, if you do these things, then God will really accept you. And Paul wanted them to stay rooted in Christ. It's not Jesus plus anything, it's Jesus, right? If you ever hear a preacher saying it's Jesus plus anything, you need to run. Because that is a false gospel. The gospel is Jesus did everything necessary for us to be saved. We rest by faith in the finished work of Christ. That's how you're saved. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And so Paul says, you've been rooted in Christ. I don't want that to change. Paul wanted the church to maintain their focus on the preeminence of Christ and not be led away by false teaching. John Polhill writes, some people at Colossae had an inadequate view of Christ. They felt the need to add to their worship and to their practice in order to ensure their full salvation. Paul saw a sim simple and single solution. The Colossians needed a greater grasp on their Savior, a tighter hold on their head. To the Colossian problem, Paul responded with the most exalted presentation of Christ to be found in any of his epistles. You know what Paul does in, in Colossians? He just lifts up Jesus and reminds him it's all about him. As a matter of fact, Colossians 1.18, he says that in all things, Christ is to have the preeminence. And in just a few weeks, we're going to get to one of the greatest Christological passages in the Bible where we see his greatness on display. And Paul is saying, I want you to stay rooted in Christ. That's how you started. Don't be led astray by false teaching. So Paul wanted the church in Colossae to be rooted. Secondly, Paul wanted the church in Colossae to be growing. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 7. As you've received... The Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, 
having been firmly rooted, and now being built up in him. So Paul's saying, not only do I want you to be rooted, I want you to grow. If you look there in your notes, Paul had a passion to see the church experience maturity in Christ. Paul was not just looking for converts. Paul wanted to see people actually following Christ, growing into Christ's likeness. As a matter of fact, look what he says over in chapter 1, verse 28, one of the most powerful statements in, in all of this book. Colossians 1, 28. Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this also I labor, striving according to his power. Paul's saying our goal is to present every person before the Lord as complete, mature, whole, Christ-like. Listen to me. Paul was not after conversions. He was after completeness. People that are saved and then taught to grow and mature in their faith. Paul did not want to see a group of baby Christians there in Colossae because he knew a group of baby Christians would not change the world. He knew if they were going to change the world, they had to grow and be built up in Christ. He had a passion for discipleship to see this church experience that maturity. But then third, he wanted the church in Colossae to be fruitful. Fruitful. Look what he says in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, the gospels come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day that you heard of it. Then look what he says in verse 10 of the same chapter. He prays that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul wanted to see fruit from their life. Paul wanted to see the church in Colossae grow to the point where they were actually producing good fruit, doing things for the Lord that was changing the world around them. Paul desired for the church to accomplish great works for the glory of God. He wanted them to be fruitful. And what I'm praying that the Lord will do in the life of our church this study is He'll help us to stay rooted in Christ, understanding who He is and what He's done for us. And I'm praying that God will help us to grow in Christ like never before during this study. And I'm praying that the Lord will take us to a new level of fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. That good things will come from our individual lives and, and good things will come from our families and good things will come from our church as we bear Christ-honoring fruit. A lot had to happen for me to enjoy blueberry pie and blueberry muffins and blueberry waffles someone had to see a plant get rooted and grow and bear that sweet fruit that's the purpose of the letter that's why paul's writing this letter he wants god's grace and peace on them so they can be rooted and growing and fruitful may the lord do that in our lives